0: Good morning, West Bowles, and Merry Christmas. How are you? You guys ready for the Gospel of John? Good, me too. Turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. As you know, if you've been with us three weeks ago, we began looking at Jesus through the eyes of each of the four Gospels, in turn. Asking ourselves, what might each Gospel emphasize about Jesus, what He's like what He's about, and who He is, even. And we saw one emphasis in Matthew, at least, is Jesus, the righteous teacher, remember? And then we saw how in Mark, Jesus is the suffering Messiah. And one emphasis, at least last week in Luke, we looked at was Jesus, the compassionate Savior. And now this week, the final week of Advent, Christmas is in two days. Can you believe it? It's Christmas Eve Eve, right? Some of you will work that out the rest of the morning, I'm sure. This final week of Advent, it's John's turn. And one emphasis, at least in John, is that Jesus is God. And John doesn't beat around the bush. We see John's emphasis immediately in John 1. Indeed, the first 18 verses of John's Gospel, you heard Pastor Dave read it just a little bit before. Those first 18 verses focus on Jesus' pre-existence with God, as God. John uses the Greek concept of logos, which we translate word to describe Jesus. Logos is this huge philosophical onion that once you start to peel it, it takes forever to get at it all. So we don't have time for a full lesson on logos this morning, but in short, logos was the Greek concept of how the gods revealed themselves or communicated to humankind. John, who wrote his Gospel in the 90s, probably 30 years after the three synoptics, he's had time to see Greek culture around him develop, and he knows it well. And so he takes, he's very clever in taking one of their pagan ideas of Logos and brilliantly taking it hostage, capturing it and using it to proclaim that Jesus is that Logos. Jesus is the revelation of the only God. Jesus is God's ultimate and perfect communication with humankind. He's the Logos. Jesus is the living Logos or living Word. And what else in John stresses Jesus as God? Chapters 2 through 11 they're dominated by seven miracles and seven major discourses or teachings by Jesus. Seven, you will recall, is a number that is especially symbolic of God Himself. There are seven I Am statements from Jesus. Each one of them emphasizing His exalted, if not divine, nature. In John 10, Jesus claims He is one with God the Father. In chapters 5 through 10, John stresses that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish festivals or feasts. We'll look at one more closely in a minute. And then finally, toward the end of his Gospel, in John 20, Thomas summarizes this major emphasis of the Gospel of John when Thomas calls out to Jesus, My Lord and my God. And note, Jesus doesn't correct him. Now, despite these... And frankly, dozens of more examples in John's Gospel alone and hundreds more than that in the Bible where Jesus' divinity that He is fully God is stressed. Despite all that, there continues to be attempts to question the divinity of Jesus. Our Mormon neighbors, for example, they stop short of declaring Jesus is God, as do many others. But those bases, the bases for for any attempt to suggest that Jesus is anything less than fully God, they don't stand up, frankly, to the overwhelming testimony of the Bible. Especially here in John's Gospel that Jesus is God. You cannot, and the Mormons and others don't, uphold the authority of the Bible And at the same time, believe or claim that Jesus was only an extraordinary human being. He was indeed that. He's the most amazing person that has ever lived. But make no mistake, according to the Bible, Jesus is God. Now this morning, with the time we have left, really, I'd like to look at one of those clear declarations in the Bible that Jesus is God. We actually looked at one last week with Zacchaeus, remember? If you missed it, that message is still online. But this morning, let's look at an example in John, one of the many in John. Your Bibles are open to John 7. We find there Jesus is in the temple courts in Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish feast of Sukkot. Say Sukkot. I'm warming you up for some Hebrew to come later. Say Sukkot. We translate that Tabernacles. Sukkot means tabernacles. You say, well, what's a tabernacle? That doesn't help me. Tabernacle is a big tent. So a Sukkot is plural for tents or booths. B-O-O-T-H-S, booths. got to be careful with that one. Booths and tents are Sukkot. Many tents is Sukkot. One tent is a sukkah. Say Sukkot. So he's there celebrating the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Tents. Before we look any closer to those specifics in John 7, I need a couple of background pieces to help us this morning. First, we need to be reminded that there are two huge biblical metaphors or pictures that relate to our story this morning. And those two pictures are related. They're the two pictures of desert, on the one hand, and something called living water, on the other hand. Many Bible stories, much of Scripture, tell us and emphasize that Israel spent a lot of time in places that were hot and dry and rugged and barren. Desert. They were nomadic shepherds at heart. And you have to get this picture out of your mind that biblical shepherds are the same as the shepherds in Iowa that wade through knee-deep alfalfa. Okay? Shepherds, nomadic shepherd people, desert and wilderness was home to them. Now, while they were enslaved by Egypt and Goshen, God gave them a very fertile portion of Egypt. Goshen's very fertile. But even around Goshen, there was this barrier, this deadly barrier. It was surrounded by desert. In the Exodus, Moses takes Israel, much to their confusion probably, and leads them from Egypt into the teeth of that desert. And because Israel wasn't ready to fully love God with all her heart, soul, and might. You remember Shema? Because Israel wasn't ready to fully love and trust God, they got an additional 40 years of desert training. Life training, really, life training on how you need to rely on God. 40 more years of that before entering the Promised Land. And even once they entered the Promised Land, Canaan, so much of Israel, many of you have been there, I know, And you know, so much of Israel, in fact, is desert and wilderness, right? I've been showing you some slides while I've been talking in Israel. They speak for themselves about some of the barren desert places in Israel, yes? And so it didn't take very long in Israel's history to equate desert with what life is like. That's what life was like. You had to deal with desert. And then, to also equate Water, which is absolutely necessary to survive in the desert, it didn't take Israel long to equate water with God. And so this desert is life, water is like God, picture is everywhere in Scripture. Life is like a desert, and God is like water in that desert. And it's one of the most prominent metaphors throughout the Bible. Today, in our country and culture at least, I I think it's hard for us to truly appreciate or feel how important water is to Israel. If it didn't rain in Canaan, there wouldn't be Tuesday and Saturday sprinkler restrictions. If it didn't rain in Canaan, you die. Crops don't grow. Sheep can't eat. There's not bottled water to buy at the store. Technology isn't there to ship it in. So in Israel, especially in Bible times, even today, but especially in Bible times, water is a very conscious, realized, daily, desperate matter of life and death. And I think it's hard for us to feel that. When we want water, right, we simply flip open the faucet and there it is. All we want. Even as as bad as it got a couple of years ago, right, we didn't even come close to that desperation Israel felt for water, did we? Maybe if I were to ask you to think of water as oxygen, seriously, that captures what water meant to Israel. Water is the air that Israel needs to take her next breath. And they had to totally rely on God to provide water in order for them to survive. Now, many biblical scholars will point to David as the original author of this biblical desert water metaphor. You might recall that there was a period in David's life where he was running from King Saul who wanted to kill him. Remember? One of the places David hid was in a desert canyon called En Gedi, way out in the middle of the desert. And at En Gedi, a fresh water spring flowed. It still flows today. And while hiding there from Saul next to the water flowing out of the ground in the middle of this hot, dry, barren desert, you wouldn't believe it, David wrote a number of Psalms. Including these. O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My body longs for You in a dry and weary land where there is no water. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. And the prophets coming after David, they saw the passion with which David wrote. They saw the metaphor of desert and water, and they were quick to pick up on it. And they ran with that image, developing it even more. And what results, you can see especially in Isaiah and Jeremiah, Desert and water are not only like life and God, but desert and water are, are used to refer directly to life and God. The metaphor or the idiom became that tight. I mean, To use the word to say desert biblically, everybody would know, oh, he's talking about life. And, and even to say the word water, or especially living water, as we'll see in a minute, oh, he, he, he's talking about God. Listen to Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah first. My people will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. Or how about Jeremiah? Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out roots by the stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. O Lord, the hope of Israel. All who forsake You will be put to shame. Those who turn away from You will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. There in Jeremiah, God is the spring of living water. See how tightly... Associated living water and water and God became in the Jewish mind. The Jews saw life as desert and God Himself as living water. Okay, I've danced around living water. Now let's dive in, so to speak. Time for a little Hebrew this morning. The Hebrew for living water is Maim Chaim. You know I'm going to make you say it. Say Maim Chaim. Oh, good het on chayim. That's good. Maim is water. Chayim is living. They reverse the adjective. Say maim chayim. I'm warming you up for praise and worship ceremony later that you're going to help me reenact. Okay? Now, the difference between just any water and living water, or maim chayim, is that living water is the type of water that flows and comes from God naturally. So rain, for example. Snow. Living water, water that runs in a stream or out of a spring out of the ground, living water. So long as the water comes under its own power and isn't being carried or hauled by an ox or a man, that's Maim Chaim, living water. Okay, in summary then, what develops in the Bible from the time of David at least, is this distinction of living water, Maim Chaim being God Himself, and our lives being a desert. Now, that's not too much of a stretch for us, is it? Can we relate to life being like a desert? Life's beautiful. It's strong. It's breathtaking. It's an adventure. But life also slurps. Right? See, if you didn't see the Christmas show this year, you totally missed that joke. Shame on you. Life's also hot, and it's dry, and it's hard, and it's tedious, and it's frustrating, and it's deadly, too. One of the worst things that we can do in church or as Christians is to deny the reality of how hard life is, even for those of us in Christ Jesus. It's hard, isn't it? And as each of us walks through the desert, we get thirsty and we begin to crave God, our living water. All of us in Christ Jesus, who are in Christ Jesus, all of us live by God's call in that desert of life. And as in every desert, eventually we will feel the heat and we will get thirsty. I've I've got no doubt, in a crowd of this size, I look out, I can almost see it on some of your faces. I'll bet, I know there are people in here this morning that are feeling the heat of the desert even right now. Your head aches, your heart's breaking, your feet hurt as you walk the path of life, literally or figuratively. Maybe it's a sickness you've been dealing with for a while or a health issue you've just learned about and it's wearing you down. Maybe it's, your, maybe it's even your own son or daughter or precious grandchild that has walked away from God. Maybe it's your marriage that's really struggling right now. Whatever it is, it, it's tearing you apart. And maybe this morning you came to church in part because you're at the point where you don't know if you can take another step. my friends, if you're not in that deep of a desert this morning, praise God. But let me tell you, you can rely on Scripture. You can rely on God who tells us that eventually, one day, you will be there in that deep desert. Because life is a desert. It's hard. And when desert happens, you know what God doesn't normally do at least? He doesn't say, oh, wow, you look like you've had enough Time to come home and then rapture your way to heaven. Sometimes we wish he would. But do you know what God does do? And he does it as often as you let him. He relentlessly says, here, drink. Be strengthened. I am living water in the desert of life. Drink of me. I am right here, always, year-round, you need only drink me in. Go ahead, drink of me. God himself says, I am my haim. Drink of me and you'll never be thirsty in the desert of life again. I will sustain you in the desert. In the centuries following David and the prophets, that picture of life as desert and God as living water becomes more and more prevalent and intense. By Jesus' day, a highly ritualized living water ceremony took place. It took place during the annual Jewish Feast of Sukkot. That Feast of Sukkot is the seventh and last feast that God commanded of His people. And Sukkot is the only feast where God outright commanded His people to really party. (laughs) It's the only one where God said to His people, okay, for Sukkot, rejoice before me. Party. And boy, did they. Jews love a good party. They partied all week. Sukkot happened in late September or early October, right after the fall harvest, so it was a time to be really glad for God's provision, and you didn't have to be working in the fields anymore, okay? It's like, praise God, he gave us food to eat. and Praise God, I'm not behind that reaper now trying to get the grain. You have to think Thanksgiving only on a much larger scale than what you've ever done in our culture for Thanksgiving. People joyfully, they followed God's construct instructions to the letter. One thing he told them to do is they told them, build temporary Sukkot. What's a Sukkot? Yeah, they camped out. They built tents with branches and blankets and stuff, whole families. They, not in their usual houses. They built tents, and they camped out in them all around Jerusalem, whole families for the duration of the whole feast, a whole week long. And they did that in part to remember the years that their ancestors out of Egypt had to spend living in tents in the wilderness and how God provided for them. So for seven days, the people would gather in Jerusalem for Sukkot. They would worship in the temple every day, and then they would live in their tents. Historians picture children running around, playing and singing, something like you know, the huge, a huge big state fair or revival or a family camp or something like that. And Jerusalem would literally be overrun with people because Sukkot was one of the big three feasts that God commanded His people specifically to come together to Jerusalem to celebrate in the temple courts. So every available piece of of ground, every campsite for miles around the city, the hillsides were covered with these Sukkot, or tents. One historian estimates that in Jesus' day, some one million people, one million crammed into and around Jerusalem for Sukkot. If you were describing this time of year, Sukkot, September and October, you might even say that there was no room in the inn, not even for a pregnant teen about to give birth. But that's a story for a different time. And each person for Sukkot would carry with them them bundles of branches, olive, palm, and myrtle, all rich with symbolism, that we don't have time to fully develop this morning, of God's promises and provisions. So they'd have their bundle of sticks. And they would use these branches by waving them and rustling them in certain ceremonies in the temple courts. How many of you brought your branches with you today? (laughs) Glenda has some. Okay, we'll use hers. Now, one highlight of that worship ceremony that took place each day of Sukkot in the temple courts was the living water ceremony. It's late fall, and so by now it's getting really dry in Israel. It hasn't rained Much, if at all, for nine months, only a three-month rainy season in Israel, November, December, and January. Sometimes it will spill over into February or start in October. But it's got to rain those three months or you're doomed. So it's looking a little dry. What they would do then, included in the Sukkot celebration, was a prayer for rain, for Maim Haim. A prayer for Maim Hayim from God, living water, right? Maim Hayim. They needed desperately that rain to fall right before they planted the next crop, so that it softened the ground, so they could plow the ground. But then also to give them their rain for the next three months, for the whole year, so their crops would grow and continue to give them life. So this is a big deal, life or death. During the prayer for rain, that's when the people would rustle those branches. Okay, we. We don't know why exactly. We've just seen in history they would, they would wave or rustle, one source says, shake those branches. One good guess, I think, seeing how experiential worship uh, was for the first century Jews, one guess is would be because it sounded like rain. Because, you know, you would, you would want to do what you were praying for, kind of a way to act it out. Now, we don't have branches here this morning, okay? but you, did, how many brought your hands? Okay, go like this. It's not quite like branches, but you've got to imagine a million people who could rustle some branches. Wouldn't that sound like rain? So what they would do is they would rustle their branches, million people strong, and then they would shout to God, Hoshana, which means save us. Shout Hoshana. Hoshana. Very good. You blew away the 815 service. I'm so proud. And then they would also shout, Maim Haim. Now, you're all very Western and Greek and American, and that's good. You all like to do things at the same time. Be Jewish. Some of you shout Hoshana. Some of you shout Maim Haim. And then don't do it at the same time and rustle your branches at the same time. Ready, set, go. (laughs) Okay, now... For some of you, that's about as charismatic a worship experience as you ever want to have. That's what it would sound like on the temple courts and surrounding hills. A million people strong. Now, by Jesus' day, this whole living water ceremony had become really ritualized. There was an order of worship. And as the people would rustle their branches and shout, Hoshana, Maim Haim, the high priest making some grand entrance, I'm sure, all decked out in his best high priestly robes, he would appear and he'd come carrying an empty golden pitcher. Probably didn't have pumpkins on it like this one. But when you're at Kohl's late on a Saturday night with $3 to spend, this is what you get. I'm just glad it's gold colored, Okay. So the priest would come in, rustling, rustling, Maim Haim, Hoshanah, save yourselves. So I'll have you do it for real in a minute. And the priest would come in, and he'd come in with this empty pitcher. Great pomp and circumstance. And he'd come to the altar. This is a pathetic attempt at the altar in the temple. It's way bigger with a ramp, and, but at least it looked old and rugged. Made out of stone, not wood. So improvise with me, okay? And he'd come to the altar. In fact, above the altar... Just to the east was the court of Israelites, that balcony that stood between the, the, um, the, 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 the courtyard, much like this pit, and the altar behind him. And he'd come with this empty pitcher, and all these people rustling, shouting, and he would show the people that the pitcher was empty. And he, when he would show the people that it was empty, it would redouble their furious rustling and shaking and pleading in and Maim Haim because they so desperately needed God to fill this pitcher in symbol and to send living water. And then he would go and then he would take... um, What would happen next then is a a whole uh, procession. How many... They've got one... What is a a, a whole group of priests called? A flock of priests. Uh, A gaggle of priests. (laughs) A whole procession then of priests. Then after you show it's empty, everybody, Oh, Hoshanah, my Maim a whole procession of priests would then go in a parade and they'd go all the way down the side of Mount Moriah to the spring of Gihon. Why do they have to go all the way down there to get water? Surely there's someone with water up on the Temple Mount. Why do they have to go all the way down to a spring to get water? It's living water. Right. Very good. Some of you in Israel, you have done this walk, either with me or with someone else, down that side of Moriah and then back up from that spring of Gihon. And you know that is... It's one of the toughest hikes we do in Israel, right? It's a, it, it's a walk. It took time. And the whole time the priest's gone to get the living water and their, you know, their parade, maybe someone's beating a drum, all you all back up on the temple courts, you know, million strong, at least surrounding hillsides looking down, you're still rustling branches and you're still shouting, Hoshanan, Maim Haim, you're praying. So the whole parade of priests go all the way down that hill We used to have a nice gurgling spring here. I forgot for the play. They took it out. Get the spring. Get the water. Now the same pump all the way back up. Come back through the eastern gate. Why through the eastern gate? Whose direction is always from the east? Take a wild guess. God. That's what you were going to say. God. (laughs) When in doubt, if a Sunday school teacher or Bible teacher asks you, "What you know, it's either God or Jesus is the right answer. Just go for it. No one will ever tell you wrong when you say Jesus, right? East is always the direction of God. Why would ancient cultures, whether it's our God or fake gods, why would ancient cultures always associate East with the direction of God? Oh, yeah, that impressed people. Look at that thing. That must be where God lives. Seriously. So God picked that picture, and that's the direction of God. Even for, So here the priests would come, and they'd come back into that eastern gate. If you guys are all shouting, Hosha'na, I'm Haim, rustling your branches, praying. As soon as that parade of priests comes in and they see, you know, his foot come in that door, oh my goodness, now it redoubles again. Then he would come up, he'd get up there, he'd go up there, he'd show them, he'd stop, he'd take a look at the altar, and then he would pour that drink offering, they call it, drink offering, onto that altar as uh, the climax of their prayer to God, to send living water. And the metaphor is so close to come himself as living water to save them. And man, when that water hit that altar, big, big loud crowd, big noise in praise and worship to God. Okay. Okay, that ceremony of the whole priest and the priest was held every day, all week long during Sukkot. Seven times they would do it. Now, the seventh time would happen on the last day of the feast. Someone might even describe it in writing in a certain gospel as the last and greatest day of the feast. And this last day was extra special. Everyone turned out. It's like the Easter and Christmas Sunday attendance in church. Everyone was there. Everything all week long during Sukkot had been building to this final climax of that Living Water ceremony. Then at six times ready, here comes number seven. It'd be the last and greatest day of the feast. You wouldn't dream of missing it. The temple courts were packed. There was standing room only. And the people were so worked up by hardly any leaves left on their branches. They're so worked up by now, historians tell us they would take their branches and in their passion literally beat them on the ground, imploring God to send living water or beat them even on the person standing in front of them if it was too close they could. And nobody cared. You get hit by a branch, that's, you hit them back. It's, you know, you're praising and worshiping God. It was okay. And then the same thing for that seventh time would happen as before. Only today, the high priest really hammed it up. Well, he was Jewish, so he, he really wouldn't ham it up. <coughs> See, teacher humor, I call it teacher humor. It's so bad, it's funny, right? Maybe. He would put on a special show. Instead of simply showing that the pitcher was only empty once, the high priest, you know, show, the high priest would walk around the altar seven times. You know It's big drama now, right? Because this is like the closing act of the living water ceremony. And each time, each time of the seven times, empty. And you guys would shout and rustle all the water. you know, two. And it took a while. This altar is huge, bigger than this grand empty oh my haim hoshanah three times four times see and i can feel the impatience i'm feeling it too not just you you know is you going to walk around that thing seven times they did they didn't have anywhere that they'd rather sorry see and i feel like i need to go too because i have things to do ah i wish that we had more of the culture where God's people wanted to come together and just, if it, it takes what it takes. Seven times they let that, and the whole time they're shouting, Hoshana, Maim Haim, and shaking their branches. I'm going to have trouble having you do that for five minutes in a minute. They would do it literally for several hours. Just that. doesn't make them better. But the Passion. The need that they had for God to send living water was that serious. So seven times around instead on the last day. And then the priest would go down to the spring of Gihon, fill it up like before, and now when he came back up, he just didn't come up and dump it. Remember, we're in the dramatic flourish time. It's the closing act. He'd come back up to that altar and these people are beside themselves. They're in a frenzy because, oh man, finally! Going to get this last sacrifice and prayer. And the priest would do something dramatic, perhaps. He'd take the the pitcher and hold it up high from that balustrade of the temple. And as soon as that pitcher comes up, in the midst of all the noise and praise and worship, deathly silence. So, and then. And it's been so loud for so long, all you can hear is your ears ringing. Ever have it that quiet? takes like 20 minutes for ears to stop ringing they say everybody all eyes on this picture and, and, and the tension and the anticipation in the crowd the closest picture I could come to when I thought of it this week was a great archer with has a huge bow right and guys he takes that string back just before he lets it go that whole bow and that that was every man, woman, and child on that temple mount. And the priest would take it and pour it out. And Josephus, the historian, tells us on that last day, when that first drop of water hit that altar, he tells us you could hear the roar in Bethlehem four miles away. Please, Father, God in heaven, send living water. Come, O living water, yourselves to save us in our desert life. Please, we need you desperately. Come, living water. Okay. I'd like to invite you to come with me now to a real-life Sukkot ceremony, living water ceremony, actually held in Jerusalem in the first century. We'll try to reenact it just a bit. Okay, now for this, I need a high priest. Who would like to be high priest this morning? Peter, you want to do it? Come on up, bud. I saw your hand. Here's your spot. Actually, here, we'll have you stand off over here. Okay. The year is about 29 A.D. It's the last and greatest day of the Feast the last and final living water ceremony. We've been celebrating all week, and everyone and everything is pointing to this moment on the final day when that empty pitcher would be filled again with living water and poured out. And God would be reminded and pleaded with once again to send living water to come Himself living water that He is in Scripture. And Jesus, right, Jesus is there worshiping right along with everyone else. So I get to be Jesus. So I'm with you, worshiping with everybody else. Okay? Now what do we do? We're worshiping. Okay, Pete. Hosanna! Okay, Pete. remember, hey, Bud? We got a, seven times around that altar. Show us it's empty each time, and each time on the empty, we're even. Show us it's empty. Show us it's empty, Bud. Peter, show us that it's empty. Hosanna! My, see now, what is Jesus doing there? What is Jesus even doing in Jerusalem? Well, it's not a hard question. What's He there for? Sukkot. He obeyed the law. God said, you've got to come to Sukkot. He comes. He almost didn't. He sent His disciples ahead. Great scholarly debate why He did that. But for, He changed His mind, He came. So He's there worshiping. Here's Jesus Himself shaking His branches. Yelling, Maim Haim. Living water, yelling up to his father, save us. Hoshana. Okay, keep yelling. Peter, you've gone around seven times. Time to go to the spring of Gahon. Come on now. Don't get tired. Hoshana. Mimhaim. Hoshana. Hoshana. Mimhaim. Hoshana. Oh, no. Okay, bud, go down and get some water. No, don't stop yelling. We've got a new high priest today. He's still learning. Louder. Here he comes. No, what do you do when he puts this thing up? Okay, we've got to practice that. Put it down. Now, loud as you can just for a few seconds. And when he hoists that sucker up, get ready, really loud. Post on him.
1: I am,
0: I am my Hayim.
1: Let anyone
0: who is thirsty come to me and drink. Anyone who drinks of me, rivers of my Hayim will flow from them. It's me, it's me, I am my Hayim. And on that day, I'll bet that crowd looked exactly like you do right now. What in the who in the. That's John 7 37 and 38. Peter, you did a great job. Thanks, budge. Now, do we know for sure it happened exactly like that? Of course not. We've lost the video footage from the day. But I have given you, in my humble opinion, a best guess as to what happened, something like that, historically, biblically, based on what we know about that ceremony. And we do know from John 7 it was the last and greatest day of Sukkot. And we know that a huge crowd of people, unbelievably huge crowd, even if the estimate is doubly wrong, it's still half a million, we know that a huge crowd of people were quiet enough to hear one man shouting. And we know Jesus shouted. The Greek is so guttural. He screamed. He shouted, it says in the Greek. And in English, out of a sense of reverence, I suppose, the best we seem to do is, and he said in a loud voice, be careful of turning Jesus only into some sort of Socrates, Plato, prim and proper tied pastor who sits over on a rock and calmly and quietly teaches great intellectual truths. Nobody has a better intellect than Jesus. Not saying that. This man was a Jew. This man, he taught, practiced, worshipped. He had chutzpah. He goes around yelling and shouting all the time. Let him be who he is. We also know his shout created a stir. It wasn't just, oh, that's a very interesting concept. He's, uh, he's Maim Chaim. Oh, no, look at what happens. On hearing his words, some of the people said, this guy's a prophet. Others said, he's Messiah. They believed. Still others asked, how can Messiah come from Galilee? Doesn't the Scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem? There they're showing their own ignorance. And in sort of a backhanded way are endorsing it. Do you see how John uses it? He teases them that they get it wrong. Thus the people were divided. His shout divided people. Intellectual ideas. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards, think Keystone Cops, those of you who are old enough to remember, they went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they asked the, the, the temple guards, why didn't you bring him in? And the temple guards said, "What was? no one ever said that before. I'm paraphrasing. What do you mean bring him in? Why would they bring him in? What did he do wrong? Other than if he did it at that moment, you know, that's like somebody had a climactic moment in our service, standing up and shouting they're God. If Jack would be here, I'd, Jack <laughs> might have been in trouble. for disru- They wanted him arrested, I think, for saying he's God. And here's why. Because in John, Jesus is God. You simply cannot shout that you are living water in that context without being fully aware that you are indeed shouting who you are. You are God. Period. To suggest otherwise is to suggest Jesus didn't understand that living water was God. Well, of course he understood that. He had Isaiah and Jeremiah memorized. He helped them write it. He knows the metaphor. So to suggest Jesus is not God really is to claim that he's stupid or that he's a liar or that he's out of his mind. And it's to suggest that the Bible is unreliable. So these folks that are going around saying, you know, you can buy into this Christian thing and and you can only believe that Jesus is this really cool person. You don't have to believe. If He's not God, then He is stupid, a liar, or out of His mind. And the Bible's not reliable. So if those four things don't bother you, go in the Bible and in John, Jesus is God. We serve a God who came Himself to save us. He came Himself in the flesh. He came as living water to give us Himself. And when He died, it's only in John, which I think is interesting, only in John that we read of that spear piercing His side. And what does John tell us? Suddenly flowed out of Jesus' side blood and Water. Hmm. I know doctors tell us, well, that means the spear pierced the pericardium and that he was really dead. Okay. But maybe also at least, John is the only one careful to include this detail because he remembers the day that the Lamb of God stood up in the temple courts in front of everybody and shouted, I am living water. Anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever drinks of me, rivers of living water will flow from them. Is your life a desert sometimes too? Are you thirsty? Then drink of the One whom God poured into a manger a drinking trough for hot and thirsty sheep panting for water. Are you thirsty? Then drink of the One who poured out His life for all who believe, including you and me. I'd like to do something a little bit different in closing today. I'd like to have... Dr. Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. Great name. You see his picture on the screen. I'd like to have him close us this morning. Um, Before he died several years ago, Dr. Lockridge was a pastor at Calvary Baptist Church, which is a prominent African-American congregation in San Diego. I want to share this with you this morning because I think John would have liked it very much. It captures... And it testifies, I think, to that exalted divine king, Jesus, that we serve. And it testifies that Jesus is God because no mere human king could be all this, could be all that Jesus is. Only God could. Now, you'll see, you'll hear Dr. Lockridge's message is more testimony than prayer, but um, We'll use it as our closing prayer this morning. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please. It's about five minutes long. But I would dearly love for you to stand with me, please, close in prayer to the words of Dr. Lockridge in the presence of our King. Let's pray.
1: The Bible says my King is a seven-way King. He's the king of the Jews, that's a racial king. He's the king of Israel, that's a national king. He's the king of righteousness, he's the king of the ages, he's the king of heaven, he's the king of glory, he's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. Well, I wonder do you know him? (laughs) David said the heavens declare the glory of God and the fundament showeth his handiwork. My king uh, is a is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoeless supplies. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He's enduringly strong. he's august and he's unique, he's unparalleled, he's unprecedented, he is the loftiest idea in literature, he's the highest personality in philosophy, he is the supreme problem in higher criticism, he's the fundamental doctrine of true theology, he is the core necessity for spiritual religion, he's the miracle of the age, he's, he, yes he is He is the superlative of everything good that you choose to call Him. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. I wonder if you know Him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and He saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and He guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers, He forgives sinners, He discharges debtors, He delivers the captives, He defends the feeble, He blesses the young, He serves the unfortunate, He regards the age, He rewards the diligent, and He beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know Him. Well, this is my King. He is the key. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's yes, indes- yes—he's yeah! 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 indescribable. Yes, he is, good God, he. He's indescribable, yes, he's indescribable, he's incomprehensible, he's invincible, he's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind, you can't can't get him off of your hand, you can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yes. Yeah. That's my king. That's my king. Yeah. And thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. How long is that? And ever. And ever. And when you get through with all of the forevers, then amen. Good God Almighty.
0: Amen. Amen.